Well, you can grab a seat. Uh, and good morning. I'm glad to be back. We've had a few weeks of uh, worship Sundays or focusing on missions, uh, but I, I'm just so excited to be back with you guys. Uh, excited to be back in the saddle, so to speak. Excited to tell you uh, that back in 1887, uh, there was a guy named Charles Lightoller. And Charles Lightoller in 1887 was 13 years old. And at that point, he decided, well, I guess it's time to be a sailor. Uh, because that's what you did in 1887. You worked for a living when you were 13. So when he was on his very first voyage as a sailor, uh, his ship encountered a giant tropical storm, and it, the storm knocked the mast off of his ship. And so they had to pull into a harbor in Rio for an emergency repair. Uh, but when they pulled in, there was a rebellion happening in the city, uh, and there was also a gigantic smallpox epidemic happening. Uh, but they kind of managed to work through the crowds. They managed to avoid smallpox as best they could. They got a new mast. They set sail again. As soon as they left port, they hit another storm. Uh, the mast got knocked off again. Uh, and this time that they, they washed up on an uninhabited island uh, where they were marooned for about eight days. So welcome to the ocean, Charles. This is the way it's going to go. And this honestly set the theme for basically his entire career as a sailor. His entire sailing adventure kind of followed this theme of just horrible, terrible, Charles, why are you on the water? Go back to land, please, dear Lord. Uh, because the very next journey that he goes on, uh, he had another tropical storm uh, assaulted on him. He uh, had a, on another ship, he had a massive coal fire start up and uh, burn down the entire ship. On another ship, uh, he caught malaria. Bummer. Uh, that's kind of a thing you don't want to catch too bad. But the truth is, he just kept going at it, right? He's the, he's the epitome, basically the life, the perfect example of the Aggie spirit. Sometimes he's defeated, but he's never, never fully defeated. He's discouraged, but he's not defeated, right? That's what I meant to say. Uh, <laughs> occasionally discouraged, never defeated. But he always won halftime, right? So that was the other thing that really connected him <laughs> to that Aggie spirit, by golly. Uh, but imagine, imagine his joy after all of these horrific adventures when finally... Harland and Wolf Industries, one of the biggest shipmakers in the world at that time, they recognized, wow, this guy can survive anything. He's incredible. He's very skilled. And so they asked him, Harland and Wolf Industries asked him to be the second mate on their brand new ship, which was the biggest in the entire world, and it was called the Titanic. And Charles got to be the second mate on the ship. Now, in case you didn't know, uh, spoiler alert if you don't watch all of Leonardo DiCaprio's movies, uh, the Titanic sinks, and when it sank, uh, he was pinned to the deck on top of a grate uh, because there's a lot of suction created as the ship is falling to the ocean. So he's pinned to this grate uh, caused by all the sinking steel, and instead of, though, sticking to the ship all the way to the bottom of the ocean, a boiler underneath him exploded, and the steam rushed up through the vents, and it propelled him, it launched him to the surface of the water after he'd been dragged down attached to the ship. As soon as he emerged out on top of the water, he found this fine, the last lifeboat. It had been overturned, but he managed to flip it back over. He rounded up about 30 survivors, and they all climbed into this lifeboat. It was actually the last lifeboat to be rescued, and he was the last person off of the boat, which makes Charles Lightoller the final survivor of the Titanic, which is pretty cool. He won a million dollars because that's how Survivor works. And he <laughs> got off. And after this, after the Titanic, 
Charles Lightover had two more shipwrecks, okay, survived both of them, uh, and eventually, okay, after an entire lifetime of basically destroying every boat he'd ever touched, <laughs> he finally found a way to use his mutant powers for good. In 1918, when he joined the Navy, was fighting against Germany, and he rammed his ship into a German submarine, sank his ship, but sank the U-boat, and he won a medal. So, uh, finally got the recognition he deserved. Charles Lightoller. My goodness. Reading his Wikipedia page this past week was probably my favorite thing I've ever done besides becoming a father. But he has an incredible story that we love. We are fascinated by stories of surviving against all odds. Why? It's because deep down, deep, deep down, we all realize that we need to be saved. We know it. We look out at the world around us. We look just inward at our own hearts and we see brokenness out there, in here. We see brokenness everywhere. And sometimes we honestly just don't even try to think about it. We try to distract ourselves. We don't even want to think about the brokenness because it can be so terrifying that humanity is is broken. Humanity is filled with violence and slavery and racism and sexism and classism. Humanity is broken. Our world is broken. The world itself is broken with natural disasters, with horrific diseases. The people on this planet, the planet itself, it's all broken. And in light of this brokenness, some people see that and they just give up hope. Some people, they see it and they just refuse to think about it. They just bury their head in the sand. They put their blinders on the sand. I'm not even going to think about it. But in our modern world, faced with this brokenness, 5.5 billion people have decided not to give up hope, have decided not to just ignore it, but have instead decided to turn towards some sort of religion promising some sort of salvation. Five and a half, five and a half billion people recognize that we need to be saved. We know we need to be saved. But who actually receives salvation? The church loves to talk about salvation. We love this term. But, but honestly, what we talk about, man, we, we love to talk about how you need salvation. We love to talk about finding salvation. We love to talk about getting saved. But in the midst of our consistency, we often lack, lack clarity, which is why for the next six weeks, for six weeks total, the next five weeks, we're talking about soteriology, which is essentially the study of salvation. And what we're going to do is we're going to break apart what salvation is. How does it work? Who receives it? Where does it go? Why do we need it? And as we break this apart, as we look at all these different components, we're going to seek to better understand salvation. And our goal in this is that if we better understand salvation, we will, great, we will more greatly appreciate the beautiful, amazing gift of life that God has offered to the world by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. This beautiful, amazing gift is what motivated, compelled the Apostle Paul to write in Romans 1 that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is proud of the power of the gospel. 
he's using a term here, uh, dunamis. It's the, the term, the Greek term where we get the idea of dynamite. This incredibly powerful thing that is the gospel, literally the good news. He's going to break down what that news is in a little bit, but he's saying, I'm so proud of it. I'm not ashamed of it. He's using the negative to reinforce a positive. I'm not ashamed. I am so proud of the power of the gospel because it is the Lord's gift. It's his power for salvation to everyone. Paul is saying that God has the power to restore humanity. Salvation, this idea of deliverance, literally saying he has the power to deliver everyone all of humanity, to take what it was broken and make it whole. Paul is pumped about this. And like I said, salvation, man, that is a loaded term. There's a lot that falls under that. It covers all aspects of deliverance. The terms like justification and redemption and reconciliation and uh, sanctification, glorification, all of these terms that we throw around in Christian circles, they fall under this idea of salvation. And we're going to talk about those in the next few weeks. But Paul's summing them all up and saying, this is all made possible through what? The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ that will bring deliverance for all people. And what this does, what this statement does, is it stands in direct contrast against atheism. Which that stance is that none will be saved. The most basic belief of atheism is that no one will be saved. And yet Paul says, no, there's there's hope. God has power to save everyone who believes. There is a great hope that all people can have. Yesterday afternoon, 105,733 people showed up to Kyle Field. Why? Because they love parking really far away and walking through honking cars and beer. I don't know. Like, why, why did they do it? It's because they had hope, right? Everyone who showed up, 105,733 people showed up at Kyle Field yesterday at 2.30 p.m. Why? Because they had hope until it was intercepted four times, but that's okay. They had it for a little bit. They had a hope, and so they showed up. Paul's saying, we have this hope. We have this incredible hope that can motivate us to do something. When we talk about salvation, what we need to understand is there's an incredible hope to be found there that other people don't have. One of the most compelling things about our belief, about the gospel, is that there is hope for the entire world, for anyone who believes. We have a hope that can change lives. But as we're talking about this, I was talking about this hope. Some people, they need to understand, why do I even need saving, right? Maybe I see brokenness, but but I don't really see, like, how is there hope for that? Like, why do I actually even need this saving in the first place? Which is why Paul immediately goes into the explanation, this need. He establishes, look, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Paul's saying ultimately what we need to be saved from, what we need to be delivered from is the wrath of God that is poured out against us. Why? Because we have suppressed the truth as displayed through our unrighteousness, meaning our our sinfulness, our, our actions outside of the Lord's will, outside of the Lord's commands. 
It says, because we have gone astray, the wrath of God is coming. We need to be delivered from that wrath. But, but how are we supposed to know what God wanted for us in the first place? Like, well, how, are we, how is it plain to us? How did God make it plain to us? Well, it's because since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his internal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. Paul's introducing the, the concept of general revelation. This is what we talk about when we say general revelation, meaning that God has revealed himself through creation. That there are parts of our world, there are aspects of humanity, of nature, of the stars, of the earth. There are parts of creation that we see the image of God present. There's so much within our world that points to the creator. Why? Because it's his creation, right? This makes sense. You always see an image of the creator in whatever he has created. The creation always points back at the creator. Just like this. What you just witnessed is one of the greatest things that's ever been created in our world. Uh, It's called Star Wars Uncut, and what they've done is they've created, they've taken all the different Star Wars movies and they broke them up into 15-second chunks. And they, what they did is they crowdsourced it. They said, "Hey, you can, anyone can sign up to make 15 seconds of this movie. You just follow kind of." frame for frame, what's happening in the film. You recreate it, we'll put it all together, and we'll make the entire movie. They did it for all three original Star Wars movies. And what they've done is they have shown, they've given an opportunity not just to watch Star Wars, right? This isn't amazing just because Darth Vader's a cat for some reason. This is amazing because what happens is every 15 seconds, what you do is you learn about the creator of that thing. You see parents using their kids. You see people that know animation. You see people that know felt puppets, I guess. I don't know. Like you see these different things come together and it's amazing. Why? Because the creation always points at the creator. You can always learn something about the artist behind their artwork. God is the creator of our universe. Paul is saying everyone can see that. He says no one's problem is ignorance. Our problem is rebellion. He says no one has an excuse. We are all deserving the wrath of God. And through this general revelation, 
we all know just enough to stand condemned of rejecting truth and of rejecting the Lord who made it. C.S. Lewis has a, a book called Mere Christianity where he talks about kind of this idea of general revelation. He starts talking about one of his arguments for the existence of, of a God is that there is some sort of moral law. There's some sort of greater objective moral law that governs humanity. He says you can look at all of these different tribes or civilizations across time, across the world, people that have never interacted with each other will never interact with each other. And yet he says there are certain moral truths that they all uphold. He says, you will never find a civilization, a tribe, a a nation, a people who applaud cowards. He says, it just doesn't happen. He says, you're never going to find a people group who love those who prey on the weak or prey on the innocent. He says, there are things like that that everyone can agree. They're like, man, that's wrong. How do we know that? He says, there has to be something happening there. There has to be some sort of governing objective truth that we were all given, that we were all imprinted with. But we see in scriptures that the Holy Spirit has provided this idea of general revelation. He has provided this common grace to all people where we all know deep down that there's a God, that there's something beyond us. Ecclesiastes frames it as saying that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Everyone knows, man, there's something bigger. 5.5 billion people in our current world, no, there's something bigger. There's something greater. And what this does is that it stands in direct contrast against universalism. Universalism is the belief that all will be saved, no matter what. Romans 1, Paul says, no, we're all condemned. We're all rebels. And because of that, we're condemned. We deserve the wrath of God. So what about that hope? Where does it go? Who receives that hope? Who can have that salvation? Who can receive that deliverance? Jesus Christ himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What we see time and time again in our scripture is that salvation is only given to those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He's the way, the truth, the life. This stands in direct contrast to pluralism, which is the idea that some will be saved, but through any and all faiths. As long as you are uh, devout in whatever you're practicing, uh, whether it's Islam, whether it's uh, Buddhism, whether it's uh, Hinduism, whether it's whatever it is, you pick and choose. It doesn't matter as long as you adhere to those commandments, as long as you are devout in that faith, whichever faith you choose, you'll be saved. Jesus Christ says, no, it's not true. Because I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one comes to the Father unless it's through faith in Christ. And this is offensive. This is very offensive. Our gospel is offensive. We need to wrap our minds around that. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, you need to realize that your stance on this is incredibly offensive. It's incredibly uh, not correct, not politically correct. People are going to hear this and they catches them off guard and it pushes them away and, and they're kind of taken aback and they're offended by it. Christ himself says, look, sometimes this is going to be a stumbling block. Some people are going to come up to this and they're not, going to, they're not going to roll with it. This is going to be really terrible. It's going to be really hard for them to accept. Some people will never accept it. 
It's going to cause tension. It's going to cause strife. It's going to drive parents away from their children, brother against brother. He says, this is going to happen because our gospel is offensive. But what we need to realize is that while our gospel is offensive, we don't have to be. Our gospel is offensive, so we don't have to be. Unfortunately, a lot of us know, I mean, there are offensive Christians, and they're offensive not just because they're sharing the gospel. They're offensive because they do stuff like this, where they hold up horrific signs. They find their really hardcore grandma. I got to give her props, bottom left. She looks pretty legit. (laughs) But this was the least offensive picture. This was the least offensive signs I could find from a group of people called the Westboro Baptist Church. They came here, uh, actually, uh, last semester. Uh, it was fun. But they, they have made this name for themselves because why? They are the most offensive people. They walk around with these horrific signs stating these horrible, hateful messages. And people look at that and they associate that with Christianity. And some people, maybe they're not out there holding signs with them, but they're, deep down they're like, I don't know, yeah, maybe, maybe they're onto something. Maybe I like to mix it up. Maybe I do want to offend someone with my stance on this political issue or that social thing. Maybe I do kind of take pride in putting up that Facebook post that kind of makes people, ooh, not sure, and it gets 37 comments from all my mom's friends. Like, I don't know. Like, some of us, some of us want to be offensive in that way. But what I'm telling you, what you'll see in Scripture is we don't have to do that. Our gospel by itself is offensive enough. It's enough to catch people's attention. We don't have to put more on that. Instead, what we should do is we should emulate the attitude of Paul, who in Romans 9 expresses that he has great sorrow, that he has unceasing anguish in his heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, for my fellow countrymen. Paul is in the midst of explaining that the Israelites, they missed the boat, that they did not see that Christ was the Messiah. They did not recognize him as the way and the truth and the life. And because of that, he knew that the nation of Israel, so many of his Jewish brothers and sisters and moms and dads and, and cousins and uncles and aunts, all of these people that he knew and loved were doomed. And he says, that kills me. He says, I wish that I could cut myself off from Christ, if that were possible, which it's not. But I wish that I could if it meant that I could save those people. That's our attitude. One of love and service, of sacrifice. One where we are dying with compassion these lost people around us. Because Paul recognizes that, look, only those who put their faith in Christ. In fact, he says it's more than just this big kind of idea of faith. He actually talks about, I mean, how does that even happen? How do you place your faith in Christ? How do you receive that salvation? Romans 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, and thus has righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses, and thus has salvation. Now, he's not here uh, getting into the nitty-gritty thing, like you have to verbally say these particular words. That's not what his point is. Instead, what we, this is entirely centered on is that idea that Jesus is Lord. Now, this rang very true for his audience, the audience of Romans, because some of them are Jews, some of them are Gentiles, and what they would both be thinking of is something else. The Jews would immediately think of the Shema. 
it was this uh, saying, this, this, uh, this mm, thing that they would repeat when they would approach the Lord, when they would go to worship the Lord, they would repeat the Shema, talking about how Yahweh is God. And he's Lord above all. Paul is saying, look, no, Jesus is Lord. You need to recognize that Jesus is God. This rang true for the Gentiles, for the Roman citizens. Because at this point, they were pushing out across all the Roman Empire that Caesar was Lord. This was an expression that they would say over and over again. They'd put it on currency. They'd put it on flags. They'd put it wherever they could, saying Caesar is Lord, as what everyone was called to confess if you're a Roman citizen. Paul says, no, Jesus is Lord. You must believe. You must confess. You must have faith. You must trust in the fact that Jesus Christ is God, as proved by the fact that he was raised from the dead. So that was, that was our perfect Truth. This was our perfect evidence for the fact that Jesus was, in fact, God. That he died, and then he wasn't dead. Only in person. Has ever done that? It says, look, salvation is only found through this personal faith in Jesus Christ. And what this does is it stands against inclusivism. Meaning, uh, which believes that some will be saved, even without faith in Christ. That some are saved by Christ, even without putting their faith in him. Which sounds like something that a lot of us would maybe automatically disagree with. Something that a lot of us would be like, oh yeah, no, that's, that sounds kind of uh, faulty, or that doesn't really make any sense. But the reality, the truth is that most of us probably actually do make our own exceptions to Romans 10, 9, and 10. A lot of us do actually kind of hold on to certain exceptions to this rule. One of the common ones is we say, well, what about the people that don't know? Right? We have this idea, or people uh, propose the idea of what about that primitive tribe in the middle of whatever continent uh, where they're seeking salvation, they're seeking the Lord, and yet they can't find him. They don't ever receive the Bible in their language. They don't ever hear the gospel communicated, and they die. What happens to those people who seek without finding? How could God condemn them? Surely God's still going to save those people. But I'm telling you, Romans 1 stands against that. Paul says, no one has an excuse. No one. There's enough revealed in general revelation that people would see that there is a God. And what's beautiful, what we see in Scripture, is that while that general revelation isn't enough to save, when it's accepted, when people start walking down that path, The Lord is faithful to provide more revelation, to provide specific revelation about the work of Christ, the deity of Christ, who he is, what he's done. It goes to those people. It's a false argument to say that there's, what about that person that doesn't know? That person doesn't exist. It's a false argument. It's a straw man argument. We see this over and over again in the book of Acts when the church is starting up. We see time and time again where, where the Lord provides specific revelation where it's needed. One of the most famous ones is a guy named Philip, one of the apostles. He's walking around. The Holy Spirit speaks to him in Acts 8, and he says, Hey, look, I need you to go out onto this road. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of the desert, but just go there. And Philip's like, All right, cool. So he starts walking out, goes out into the middle of this just deserted country, and all of a sudden he sees this carriage, or sorry, a chariot ride up. He's like, Oh, well, how about that? And the guy in the chariot, is reading something, and he's kind of like puzzled, and Philip's like, hey, uh, what are you reading? And the guy's like, well, I'm reading Isaiah. 
It's like, I'm trying to figure out all this stuff. Like we have this, the prophecy and there's this person here and I don't really understand it. And so Philip gets up in the chair and he explains to this Ethiopian, this guy from this far off land, he starts to explain to him, well, look, this is pointing at Christ and this is what Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. And the Ethiopian comes to faith in Christ in that moment. He sees what Philip wanted to tell him. He's like, oh, that's really great. He gets saved. They happen to be near this like little body of water. And the Ethiopian's like, hey, well, can I just get baptized right now? And Philip's like, okay, cool. So they go out into the water. Philip baptizes them, and as soon as the Ethiopian starts coming out, this is my favorite part of the story, uh, the Holy Spirit, it tells us that the Holy Spirit just like took Philip away. So the Ethiopian comes out of the water, and he's like, what? And that would be super weird. But he gets in his chair, he goes back home, and he takes the gospel with him. We see time and time again, different people like the Ethiopian, a guy named Cornelius, other figures who they wanted more. They were seeking more knowledge of this God who had generally revealed himself. And every single time the Lord was faithful to provide someone to speak to them. It's amazing. If you hear stories and testimonies out of the Middle East, out of maybe some places that we would consider underdeveloped or or developing nations, people that maybe don't have the gospel in their language or the Bible in their language, what's incredible is so many testimonies from those places. The people speak of dreams. Not just missionaries who, get, who bump into these tribes and get to share the gospel. And that happens as well. But the Lord speaks through dreams and visions to these people. Because ultimately, God doesn't need us. If someone's truly seeking after the Lord, he will reveal more as needed. He provides that specific revelation where it's needed. But for some of us, that's not our category. Some of us, we say, well, yeah, maybe those people are taken care of, but... What about those who can't know? What about the mentally disabled? People who maybe don't have the mental capacity to put their faith in Christ. What about children? What about babies? Who haven't had the chance to hear it, to understand it, to put their faith in Christ. What about them? What happens to those people? Where do they go? Some people try to argue, well, look, they haven't actively rejected God yet, right? Maybe they haven't done anything willfully against the Lord, so maybe that excuses them. But again, Romans 1 points against that. Romans 5 is an even better example where Paul explains, look, sin is passed from person to person, from father to son, from mother to daughter. Sin is passed through the generations, all from Adam, There's this idea of original sin that everyone inherits. Everyone is born into sin. It's explained by Romans 5. It's evident in their death. The fact that a baby can die is evident of sin in their life. They've been affected by sin. They've been tarnished by sin. Therefore, death is a part of their reality. Some people, they turn to 2 Samuel 12. They say, well, what about that? What about David, in case you don't know what it is? David is mourning the loss of, uh, or his son has gotten really sick, his firstborn son through Bathsheba. Uh, The Lord is allowing the child to die because of David's sin, his adultery and murder that caused the the kid's birth. And so uh, David's mourning for the son. He's fasting, he's praying that this kid would be spared, and yet his son still dies. And as soon as the son dies, David stops fasting, he stops mourning. And his servants are all confused. They're like, hey, like, What's the deal? Like, why aren't you still upset? Like, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, and David says, well, I can't bring him back. He says, what's the point of me continuing to fast and pray and mourn if he's dead? Like, I can't bring him back. But he says, I know 
that even though he won't come back to me, I will go to him. Some people make an argument. They say, well, you know, that means that he's going to go to heaven, that they're going to be in paradise together. That's what David's talking about. But we touched on this about a year ago, but that's not what David's saying. The understanding of the afterlife at that time, he's talking about Sheol. He's talking about just death itself. The Israelites, that's how they understood. They said you would go to just this ending, this afterlife. And then you would, you would find out, okay, am I going to paradise or am I going to Hades? And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to go to death. I'm joining him in death, not necessarily in paradise. It's not cut and dry. It doesn't fully answer the question. So what do we do about it? I had a cousin named James. Uh, when I was in about second or third grade, uh, James was born. He was uh, uh, one of my uncles, got remarried and new wife first kid, uh, and James was awesome. James had a pretty, pretty severe case of Down syndrome, and he was uh, just a joy, just so fun. And watching him grow up, uh, we lived kind of close to each other, and he was just, he was really just fun. That's the only way I could describe it. He was kind of my first, like, cool cousin to have, where I was old enough to, like, be actually be able to hold him and stuff like that, and, like, they could trust me around him, and that was great, and so I would love to play with James and, and interact with him. And James uh, was just brought so much life, so much joy to his family, to the situation. Uh, it's because it was just, it was a weird marriage and they were getting started off. They had other kids from previous marriages and just kind of a rocky situation. But James was kind of this unifying glue, this kind of bond. Uh, but James, when he was about two, between two and three, uh, he was playing in their, in their uh, living room and he got a uh, toy uh, lodged in his throat. And it cut off the air supply to his uh, brain. And they found him. And they took him to the hospital, but it was too late. So they waited a few days. And they just had to cut off life support because he was brain dead. So I understand this question. I understand this struggle. Because I want to know, man, what happened to James? And we've had those experiences. We have those friends or those relatives who've walked through those similar cases. Maybe we have personally. And I have to tell you that our scripture, and that I, please believe me that I have studied and studied and studied, and so many men and so many women, so many wise scholars have studied and studied and studied, and yet the vast majority of us have to admit that our scripture never lands anywhere with certainty. There's not just that one black and white, clear-cut verse that we can point to, but our scripture does set up a trajectory that we can hope in. We know that our God loves the unlovable, that he loves to defend the defenseless, James describes it as pure, defiled, undefiled religion. He's saying basically religion, the, the devotion to God in its most pure sense before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows and their misfortune, to keep oneself unstained by the world. He says, what does God ultimately desire? What is one of the most pure and undefiled things you can do for him? To defend the defenseless, to love the unlovable. To go to that orphan or that widow who at that time were just the most despised, useless people in all of civilization. He says, you go to them and you care for them. You love them. That's what God the Father 
is all about. We know that Jesus Christ loved, adored children. He's talking to his disciples. He says, let the little children come to me. Do not try to stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus Christ adored children. God the Father loves the unlovable. And the Holy Spirit is capable of changing any heart. Any heart. God makes the promise in Acts 17 that although he had overlooked such times of ignorance, that he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. God says, I have sent my spirit to the world. My Holy Spirit has come upon the earth And it is calling everyone. It is commanding everyone everywhere to repent. The Holy Spirit is capable of changing any heart, of pulling anyone towards the Lord. So I have a reasonable hope that my cousin James is saved. I don't know but I hope our faith, any of our faith, is made possible by the grace of God. It's by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. My faith is only made possible by grace, so we can hope that that grace, that His grace can extend to those who we assume cannot put their faith in Christ. How does that work exactly? I don't know. But it's reasonable for us to hope in that trajectory. For some of us, though, that's not enough. Right? For some of us, uh, we're still offended. Maybe on one of those other points. Some of us, maybe we still demand answers. But here's the truth of our situation. Is that we're not in a position to make demands of God. That's not our calling. That's not our spot. That's not our role. It's not our position in this world. God tells us in Isaiah that his plans are not like our plans. My deeds are not like your deeds. For just as the sky is higher than the earth, so my deeds are superior to your deeds, and my plans are superior to your plans. God's thoughts and plans are bigger than anything we could ever hope to understand, to hope to comprehend. He's bigger than we are. We are finite beings trying to understand the infinite God, the infinite creator of all things. We can't do it. So what is our position? Well, those secret things, they belong to the Lord. But those that are revealed belong to us and our descendants forever so that we might obey all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is one of my favorite verses in all in scripture because it is the clearest commandment to all of us. There are some things that we can't understand. There's some things that we can't know. And we need to be okay with that. We need to trust that God is in control of those things. And in the meantime, while we entrust those secret things, those hidden things, as some translations say, to the Lord, we grab a hold of the revealed things. We grab a hold of what we know and we run with it. So what's been revealed? What do we know? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we know. 
Paul says, how are they to call on the one that they have not believed in? How are they to believe in one that they have not heard of? How are they to hear without someone preaching to them? How are they to preach unless they are sent? He says, as it is written, how timely is the arrival of those who proclaim the good news. Consequently, faith comes through what is heard, and what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ. God has revealed to all of us that he wants to use us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear it. That is so clear. That is revealed. It was Jesus' parting words to his disciples, to all of creation. He says, look, I'm going to come back one day and it's going to be really cool. But in the meantime... You don't need to worry about when that day is coming. You don't need to worry about understanding some of the, how that's going to work exactly. He says, but what you need to worry about is you need to go out and you need to make disciples. You need to go to all the ends of the earth. You need to tell people about who I am. You need to baptize them. You need to lead them to faith. Share with them the gospel of what I've done, the good news of what I've done. That's our command. That's what's been revealed. That's what we know. We know that there are people made in the image of God who don't know Jesus Christ. We know that God calls us to go to those people. That is so clear. And if we truly believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then the end result of that belief is that we would be going out and sharing the gospel. This has to be the result of our belief. If we truly have compassion for the lost, the dying among us, then we would be praying for them. Then we would be moving towards them to proclaim the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and of what he's done. We just spent two, two Sundays, spent a whole week talking about missions Now, I'm just going to hammer it one more time. There are people around us who need to hear the gospel. Some of them are really far away. Some of them are in other nations, on other continents. And you know what? We have opportunities here and now that you can take a hold of where you can go to those people. We have a winter trip, a vision trip coming up where they're going to East Asia, where they're going to trade winds, North Africa context. If you're going to one of those places, let us know. The application for that is due soon, but it's a 10-day trip coming up in January, beginning of January where you can go and you can look at what does it look like to share the gospel in those types of contexts. We have summer trips that are longer, the application's further away, so you have more time to think about it. But we want to send you to these people. We want to help you fulfill this call. But you know what? There's not just people far away who need to hear the gospel. There's people in your classes that need to hear the gospel. There's people at your work that need to hear the gospel. Your lab partner might need to hear the gospel. So we also have an opportunity every single week to share the gospel with them through campus evangelism. Every single week, all of our fellows go out on campus and they walk around, they meet people, they have different tasks and goals and different methods that they use week to week. They're being trained by crew, which is, I mean, this is their bread and butter, just straight up on-campus evangelism. Every single week, for two hours, we go out on campus and they, they talk with people, they meet people and they start conversations with them, they set up appointments with them to follow up, they share the gospel with them in all these different sorts of ways. And you can do that. You can join us in that. You are surrounded by lost and dying people and your heart should be breaking for them. So one opportunity to share the gospel with them is to come with us. 
you have questions about any of those things, the, the far, the near, just talk with us after the service. We'll be back at the back counter. You can ask us about any of that. But right now, as, as we're preparing uh, to sing a few more songs, as the band's coming up, I'm just, I'm excited for this morning, especially for us to be taking communion. And we're doing it because the purpose of communion is to remind us of what Christ has done for us. It's a reminder of what he calls us to proclaim to others. So we'll sing a few more songs. As they, as they play these last couple songs, you don't have to rush to communion. You can go as you feel led. We're not going to be dismissing you by rows or anything like that. You can go at the beginning. You can go after the first song, whenever. You've got two full songs. Don't, there's no rush. But if you feel led, please, we have stations in the back. We'll have some up front. Come. Be reminded of what Christ has done for you. As Paul said, summing up uh, communion in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, after Christ had given thanks, he broke it. And he said that this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Christ also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says, every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You are proclaiming the gospel through communion. We are proclaiming the gospel through missions, proclaiming the, proclaiming the gospel through on-campus evangelism. You can proclaim the gospel to your parents who don't know Christ, to your brother, your sister, your roommate. We as believers, if we truly believe that we are saved by faith, through grace, in Christ, we need to be proclaiming this gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you that you have chosen to use us in the spread of the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to provide revelation where needed. God, you are faithful to always send people where they need to be sent, that you're faithful to deliver the news where it needs to be heard. Lord, we thank you that we, you don't have to use us. That God, you can do this without us, but, but yet you've given us the opportunity, the joyous opportunity, the, the wonderful, fulfilling purpose of sharing your gospel. So God, we just ask that we would get on board with that. The Lord, we would see that vision. The Lord, we would, we would take a hold of that purpose. God, we would run with that. If you would, take a moment right now just privately ask the Lord, God, bring to my mind right now one person that needs to hear the gospel. It could just be a face. It could be a name. It could be a relationship you've had for years. Ask the Lord to just draw that person to your mind right now and begin praying for them. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convict their heart Pray that the Lord would open them, would soften them towards the gospel and pray that the Lord would give you an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Ask him for that right now.